This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report. I'm Tegan Taylor. Imagine this. You're waiting in a doctor's office. And even though it's the middle of a pandemic and even though rules are strict, your partner has been allowed in the room. You're pregnant, but this isn't an antenatal appointment. You're about to get a diagnosis that would rock any family, but especially a family preparing for what should be a joyful time. Shelby Trainer produced this story. Suddenly time had stopped. I remember just not understanding anything that was going on. My partner was taking notes and crying. And I was sort of like, why are you taking notes and crying? Everything's going to be fine. It's just going to be benign. I was 29 weeks pregnant, and that was, uh, I think, the very first time that I could actually feel baby moving the whole day, nonstop. And the reality hit that I'm carrying life while my body is trying to kill me. Nama Carlin was diagnosed with breast cancer in late 2021. She was also pregnant with her first child. I never thought about getting a cancer diagnosis, um, so she's not <laughs> at 38 years old. Cancer in pregnancy is rare. Professor Fran Boyle is a medical oncologist who has treated several of these women throughout her career. As women are having pregnancies later, particularly first pregnancies, into their 30s and 40s, then they start to get up into the age where breast cancer in particular begins. Before her diagnosis, Nama had already struggled to come to terms with what was happening inside her body. It also happened to be in the middle of Sydney's Delta Wave. It was an emotionally challenging pregnancy. I didn't get the sense of euphoria or, or thrill or connection. It was, it was a planned pregnancy. It was a wanted pregnancy. But when I found out that I was pregnant, I all of a sudden felt disconnected. And I didn't really feel pregnant. I didn't have any pregnancy symptoms. I wasn't nauseous. I wasn't throwing up. I didn't even start showing my a belly until my third trimester. And uh, that's, that's the same exact time that I was sort of wondering something's wrong with my breast as well and I need to take some action on it. Because of the pandemic, Nama dealt with the health system largely at a distance, with telehealth appointments often replacing in-person consults. Which meant when the pain in her breast first began, it wasn't picked up as anything out of the ordinary. I spoke privately to a lactation consultant who said, look, it could be a blocked milk duct. It's not uncommon when you're pregnant. <laughs> Put potato slices on it and massage, massage the blockage. So my dutiful partner was uh, sitting in the evenings massaging um, <laughs> this lump and I was sitting there with potato uh, slices in my bra. It wasn't until I had a standard shared care appointment with my GP. I must have been 26 or 27 weeks pregnant. He examined me physically and said, you need to get an ultrasound. Most women who are pregnant would say almost the sort of first sign of pregnancy is the breast starts to change, particularly 
uh, in later pregnancy, people might not distinguish a lump from just uh, the breast getting bigger. The other thing is that this is not an age group who's going to be having routine mammograms or ultrasounds because they're not in the screening age group, so they won't be candidates for early detection. Nama booked an ultrasound for the following week, but when her doctor checked in that night, he reiterated the urgency of the situation and got her in somewhere the next day. That's the first time that I had an inclination that something could be going wrong when I was lying there on the table and the sonographer asked, do I have a history of breast cancer in my family? And I... Uh, I was like, no, but suddenly it registered. And when she called the doctor in to come and examine me, I was like, okay, it's never good when they start bringing in other people into the examination room. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that was uh, when things started to escalate. I got biopsied on the Wednesday and the breast surgeon told me we're going to expedite your results. Nama had a gut feeling. She spent the weekend between the biopsy and her next appointment looking up breast cancer in pregnancy, researching the correlation. I, I had known that it was breast cancer, although my partner and my mum, who was here, they had gone in thinking, oh, we're just going to get the results. It's a benign something or other. But, um, but I knew. I knew that it was, that it was cancer. Even though I knew, sitting down in the doctor's office and the fellow saying, you know, very sorry to tell you that both your biopsies came back positive for breast cancer. I didn't even know what to ask. What do you ask? I had just understood or realized or accepted that I was pregnant. Like this is my third trimester. Suddenly I'm feeling pregnant. I'm looking pregnant. Suddenly I, I feel like actually I, I can do this. I can be a parent. And then you find out that you have cancer and your body is trying to, to kill you. And I'm um, needing to, to reconcile these two realities of life, life and potential death. How do you go on to parent someone when you have a cancer that can recur in the next five years? Can recur any time, but that a high, has a high rate of recurrence. What do I do? So what can you do as a pregnant woman in this situation? Well, chemotherapy is an option, and for Nama, there was no time to waste. She started treatment within days. I had no questions. I just wanted to, I wanted to have chemotherapy more than anything in the world. I wanted to be in that treatment chair. I wanted to stay alive for, for my baby, to, to, to be here for him. Professor Boyle says when it's a wanted pregnancy, like Nama's, it's important to weigh up the safety of the mother and the safety of the baby. That's going to be different in different stages of pregnancy. So in very early pregnancy, if you give chemotherapy, the baby uh, won't survive. But once you get to the middle part of pregnancy, you can give chemotherapy. That's because of special blood vessels on the placenta, little pumps that prevent toxins from passing through. And that's a mechanism that's evolved, we assume, to try and protect pregnant women from toxic plants that are in the environment. While chemotherapy and surgery can be safe, radiotherapy is off limits during pregnancy. So are scans that would normally be routine for cancer patients. I couldn't have a PET scan because it's too toxic 
And so I wasn't able to get staged. Staging is when they, they see where the cancer is located and whether it's progressed beyond its primary location. And so it was hard not knowing the whole time, not knowing whether it's progressing, what it's doing, is it responding to chemotherapy? Nama wasn't just dealing with the unknowns of her treatment. She also had to grapple with the likely prospect that her baby would be coming early. My oncology team coordinated with the maternity ward and organised an appointment for me with the NICU because they said, your baby might be going there. So we, we had to, to do all these different things in that first week. The babies are more likely to be born a little bit early and that's often because once you've reached 37 weeks or so, you'll be keen to get the baby out and get on with the woman's cancer treatment. So they do tend to be slightly premature, but that's often our intervention rather than because they come prematurely. So many different doctors that we saw, they said, some of them said that we have to abort, we have to treat this right away. Patty Murray was also diagnosed with breast cancer while pregnant. My obstetrician put me in touch with my oncologist and he was telling me that he has read that people can have treatments, including major surgery, while you're pregnant. And so I had to, you know, believe him on blind faith. This was close to 30 years ago in 1995. It's been so long ago. My son just turned 26. I was uh, diagnosed with, or I was pregnant with him. I was just finishing up my, my first trimester when I found a lump underneath my arm. The nurse practitioner at first said, oh, I don't think it's anything. It's probably your milk ducts, clogged milk ducts or something. And the doctor was smart. He says, just go and get a, an ultrasound. So when they did the ultrasound, we couldn't see anything. It was like looking for a car in a snowstorm here in Buffalo, New York. And then they did a biopsy. And right then and there, that day, they told me it was cancerous. So we started a crazy whirlwind of what do we do? Right after the surgery, two days later, I went to my oncologist and I said, so what do we do, doc? And he said, um, we're starting chemotherapy today. For Patty and for many women diagnosed with cancer while pregnant, it was difficult to believe chemotherapy could be safe. What was going through my head is I remember being pregnant with my first two children. My doctors were so afraid of even giving me an antibiotic, much less taking aspirin or Tylenol. And then all of a sudden they're telling me that you have to have, you know, you can have this chemotherapy though. Just boggled my mind and I talked to my nurse. I said, could you put me in touch with anyone that has had cancer while they're pregnant? Patty was connected with a new mother who'd been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma just a year prior. She called me up and she said, this happened to me. I took the same kind of chemotherapy. My son, he sat up at six months he was, you know, crawling at the normal age. And just to hear that, and I heard him in the background, and she said, but I, when I was being treated at the major cancer center here in Buffalo, I was sitting in the waiting room and another lady had a, a big belly. And so I started talking to her and she, we struck up a, a friendship and she had breast cancer. Connection is important when you're going through pregnancy and when you're going through cancer treatment. So when you're going through both, at the same time, it's essential. The three women were there for one another as they dealt with pregnancy, motherhood, and illness. You feel like, you know, it's just a super freak. <laughs> so it was wonderful to be put in touch with people 
that have uh, had the same kind of you know medical treatment, so we could talk about the side effects of that and how their babies turned out, but also about just your hopes and fears and just you know wondering whether you're going to make it to your kid's kindergarten graduation or not, uh, much less walk them, you know, see them walk down the aisle to get married. So my other two children were born with no hair, but believe it or not, Patrick was born 10 days early with a full head of hair and he was eight pounds. Unbelievable. It wasn't just the support of her peers that helped Patty through, but a close relationship with her oncologist. It's something Nama mentioned as well. I remember her talking and saying, so what are you doing? Uh, is your house ready for the baby? And I'm like, no, I just found out that I have cancer and nothing's, nothing is ready. And she, the next time that I had chemotherapy, she had waiting for me a book, nursery room, kids room inspiration, and a handwritten list of these are the things that you need to buy. Uh, these are the things you need to have prepared for your baby. It's not Jewish custom to name a baby before it's born, but Nama's oncologist suggested an interim name, Noah, the child that weathered the storm. And that was his nickname for that time. Um, And that was a level of commitment. Um, But there was also great coordination between my oncology team and the team at the maternity unit. There was a lot of negotiation between my oncology team and the maternity ward they wanted to keep the baby in for 37 weeks and my oncology team wanted him out at 35 and 36 weeks. They ended up uh, in the middle and sent me to an induction at 36 weeks and three days. Nama feels lucky to have ended up with the team that she did. She calls them her A-team. But she acknowledges not all women have the same experience, partly because there are no set protocols on how to deal with cancer in pregnancy. I have unfortunately had the personal experience of having two friends who had cancer during pregnancy, different cancers, different timing in pregnancy. Nada Hamad is an associate professor at the University of New South Wales and a clinical haematologist at St Vincent's Hospital. One of Dr Hamad's friends was diagnosed with lymphoma when what doctors thought was pregnancy-related back pain became so debilitating she could barely walk. Another was diagnosed with melanoma. And supporting those two friends really highlighted to me the areas that I was blind to. I thought I did this well in terms of looking after patients with cancer during pregnancy and that I understood the issues that arise for these women. But in reality, when I experienced what it was like for them and in supporting them, I started to notice what was missing in their care. When I was, you know, looking at the information, I just felt it wasn't detailed enough. Dr. Hamad threw herself into research to learn more about pregnant women who were diagnosed with lymphoma in particular. And it felt like a perfect opportunity, given that we knew who those women were, to ask them about their lived experiences, as in, how did it work out? What were you worried about? What did we do well and what could we have done better? They wanted to see better communication between the teams that were looking after them. It wasn't always the same team, so a hematologist, an obstetrician, sometimes a neonatologist, 
Older people didn't necessarily always talk to each other very well because they're not normally people who are in the same team. Creating team dynamics that works very quickly, very suddenly, is not something we're very good at. And so the patients felt that. They said they felt their communication could have been better between team members. They felt that there could have been better sensitivity around preserving their future fertility. And, you know, that was something that struck me because we always assume that someone who's experiencing a life-threatening cancer and particularly during a difficult time like pregnancy, that the future fertility would be probably further down the list of their priorities. But in fact, that wasn't the case. So the rarity of the problem means that whenever women experience the health sector in this form of crisis, they feel that they're somehow let down by the system. The lived experience study also identified the need for economic and childcare assistance, especially for women with multiple children. It also highlighted the need for ongoing psychosocial care. Probably all pregnant women have ideas about how they want things to go. So this is a complete, you know, cross-cut where the whole pregnancy becomes much more medicalised than they might have been wanting. And one of the times, of course, that's hard is the time after the baby's been delivered. Nama's baby needed special care after his birth, and she says this was the hardest time. For me, the devastating part was, you know, when I told people that I had cancer while I was pregnant, everyone said, you know, the, the best thing about having cancer while pregnant is that at the end of the day, you take home a beautiful baby. And, and I didn't. At the end of the day, I went home by myself. I was discharged from hospital and I went home without my baby. I left him behind in hospital. And I felt so pained. I felt that uh, they ripped me open, pulled him out, and, 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 and he's there because uh, something that I did uh, was wrong. I got cancer. It was my incubator that was faulty and I felt very guilty. I was so worried about the impact that being in hospital will have on my baby. I never thought to consider the psychological impact that it would have on me, even now, a year later, carrying this intense guilt about this period of time, even though he needed to be there and we were treated marvellously. Nama isn't alone. Patty also struggled after giving birth and it manifested in a very physical way. Oh, I felt like I was having a heart attack, to be honest with you. I, I couldn't function. I felt frozen. Um, I literally couldn't get out of bed one day. She got in touch with a cancer counsellor. She handed me a, an article in the magazine, and it was all about this woman that had post-traumatic stress syndrome after she had a major car accident. And I'm like, this, uh, this lady described all the same symptoms that I was having. And I said, yeah, but this lady had a car accident. Like she almost died. She goes, you never dealt with being diagnosed with a life-threatening illness because you just were doing the doing, doing all the stuff, being the mom, you know, going to cancer treatments, doing this and all that. Finally, it just caught up with you. After just four appointments, the counsellor had what seemed at the time a strange suggestion for Patty. She says, you have learned so much from your experience. You now have to go out and help other people. And I'm like, I can barely take care of my little family. How am I going to do that? For Nama, getting through the first weeks and months with her baby boy 
was a community effort. My community friends rallied around us and dropped off food and offered just support, offered chats, um, went for walks. These were the people that kept me going when it was the hardest, you know. There were days where I couldn't barely move, barely eat, but they kept us fed and, and alive, really. So I owe so much to this community of people, but also a community of strangers from social media sending care packages. I don't think, I think I, we barely had to buy baby clothes. Everyone sent us clothes and blankets and toys and connected me with the Hope for Two network. Hope for Two was Patty's answer to her counsellor's call. She co-founded the organisation with the two women she met during her treatment, Mary Rose and Lisa. That was the best thing for me to help other people. As soon as a new patient came in and I would talk to her, I would listening to her story, offer her some, you know, support. It was like a miracle. I'd get off the phone and my sweating, my panic, you know, symptoms would vanish, just vanish, just helping somebody else. That was like my, my therapy. The organization connects expectant mothers with other women who were diagnosed with a similar cancer to reassure them and guide them through the experience. They connected me with someone from Australia who had triple negative while she was pregnant. We spoke on the phone a few times and I updated her about the baby and the birth and their marvelous, marvelous network. They provide knowledge and information. They educate doctors and oncologists about pregnancy and, and cancer. So many people, they say when bad things happen to you, they say, why me? Oh, why me? Poor me? Why me? No, I never once said, why me? I went through all this experience, almost like an autobiotic experience. I'm like, this happened to me for a reason. Why did this happen to me? I had to go through all this in order to start something. Women in this rare situation are often reliant on these philanthropic organizations for support. But Dr. Nada Ahmed is hoping some of this care can be instilled in the health system, so all mothers have equal access. If you're going through a crisis like this and you need to take time and, and you know, um, have chemotherapy on top of looking after other children, uh, on top of work commitments, breastfeeding support or advice of how you would do that during chemotherapy. These are all services that we don't actually offer. And hearing that firsthand from women, putting it down on paper meant that we could then consider how we would want to advocate, how we'd want to design systems, all starting by asking these women about their experiences. Nama is still going through treatment but she's already pushing for changes to improve the experiences of other women. Messaging around the importance of breastfeeding, excessive warnings about the harms of certain scans on babies, all contributed to a profound sense of guilt. I felt like I let him down. I felt that I had done wrong by him. I thought, uh, gosh, if only I kept him in for a bit longer, but then I couldn't have had treatment as early as I have, or couldn't have my PET scan when I did, and yeah, so it was a lot of guilt. I would encourage women who have had that experience to please share it, please discuss it with anyone, you know, that you think has the power to make change in the system, uh, because it really matters. That perspective is really rare and really valuable. 
For Dr. Harmat, it's not just these rare circumstances that need attention. It's pregnant women, and women in general, who are often dismissed in the healthcare system. You know, we have algorithms in our heads when we're trained in medicine to decide on whether something is abnormal or not normal. So what is a normal period? What is a normal pregnancy? Particularly if it's the first pregnancy, you will often hear doctors say, oh, it's your first pregnancy, this is totally normal in pregnancy, without really realizing that what's normal in pregnancy is actually not necessarily truly normal. And there is no measure of how abnormal symptoms need to be before you have to act. So, for example, my friend who said, I have terrible back pain. Oh, this is normal in pregnancy. You know, it's fine. It'll take time. It'll get better. That's usually without even investigating with a scan, without even examining to figure out how is this normal? How isn't it normal? What ends up happening is that women hear this message that, oh, no, it's just related to pregnancy and start doubting themselves and often will let things go. But I truly believe that women going through pregnancy have the right to say and speak up and say, I don't think this is right. This is not normal. This is not okay. It was a welcome relief when Nama was able to bring her son home and experience, along with the exhaustion, (laughs) the joyful side of being a new parent. I was so happy when our family, and he was home and I would go and have chemotherapy and I'd come home after, you know, four hours and and baby would be there and I could have a cuddle with him. And um, I remember lots of photos of me and baby sitting and reading and cuddling and we're both bold. <laughs> I think baby had, had more hair than me at some point. It's, it's it's actually very lovely to, to you know, I take my baby to see my oncologist and he comes to me to treatment and he's like, he, you know, he really likes my clinical nurse. So he always smiles to her. So it's uh, it's actually quite nice to take him with me to the cancer hospital because, um, you know, I feel less alone when he's there as well. It's these experiences that Professor Fran Boyle shares with her patients when they've just been diagnosed. It's the first question they ask. Have you ever come across the situation before what happened to the baby. And so I'd be able to say, yes, here are the photographs of the babies, you know, and they're special babies. Interestingly, they're often quite well behaved. I don't know whether that's a side effect of chemo or whether they just realise, you know, don't push mum, she's close to the edge. And to just be able to go, it's going to be okay, here's the pictures, you know, these babies grow up fine. Here's one doing the HSC. I think that actually gives women a lot more confidence. I am faced with my mortality in such a, in such a, a, real, a real way, and my choice is just to live as much as possible. And it's been difficult, challenging, but also really wonderful. And, yeah, I feel very fortunate that this community has come together to support me and, and us. He's such a well-adjusted, funny, quirky baby. And to think that he was born, you know, 2.3 kilos, um, you know, unable to to feed, uh, all these traumatic associations with his birth, which I still, I still carry. And yet he's like the funniest, quirkiest little boy. I feel very, very lucky to have had that. And what a story we'll have to tell him about his birth. Nama Carlin finishing off that story. You also heard from Professor Fran Boyle from the University of Sydney, 
Dr Nada Hamad from the University of New South Wales, and Paddy Murray, who co-founded the Hope for Two network. There are other supports available for mothers going through cancer, which can be accessed through the Mummy's Wish Foundation here in Australia. We'll leave a link in the show notes. That story was produced by Shelby Trainer, and our sound engineer was Isabella Tropiano. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.